The New Languages by Edmund Carpenter and Marshall McLuhan. The New Languages. English is a mass medium. All languages are mass media. The new mass media, film, radio, television, are new languages. Their grammars are yet unknown. Each codifies reality differently. Each conceals a unique metaphysics. Linguistics tells us it's possible to say anything in any language if you use enough words or images, but there's rarely time, and the natural course is for a culture to exploit its media biases. Writing, for example, didn't record oral language. It was a new language, which the spoken word came to imitate. Writing encouraged an analytical mode of thinking with an emphasis upon lineality. Oral languages tend to be polysynthetic, composed of great right conglomerates like twisted cables within which images were juxtaposed and then separately fused. Written communications consisted of little words chronologically ordered. Subject became distinct from verb, adverb from adjective, adjective from noun, separating actor from action, essence from form. Where the preliterate man imposed form differently and temporarily, for such transitory forms live but temporarily on the tip of his tongue. In the living situation, the printed word was inflexible, permanent, in touch with eternity. It embalmed truth for posterity. The embalming process froze language, eliminated the art of ambiguity, made puns the lowest form of wit, destroyed word linkages. The word became a static symbol, applicable to and separate from that which is symbolized, and now belonged to the objective world it could be seen. Now came the distinction between meaning and being, the dispute as to whether the Eucharist was or only signifies the body of the sacrifice. The word became a neutral symbol, no longer an extricable part of a creative process. Gutenberg completed the process. The manuscript page, which pictures cultures and correlation between symbol and space, gave way to uniform type, the black and white page, read silently, alone. The format of the book favored a lineal expression, for the argument ran like a thread from cover to cover, subject to verb to object, sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, chapter to chapter, carefully structured from beginning to end, with value embedded in the climax. This was not true of great literature, which retained multi-perspective, but it was true of most books, particularly texts, histories, autobiographies, and novels. Events were arranged chronologically, and hence it was assumed causality, relationship not being, was valued. The author became an author, arity, or an authority. His data was serious, that is, serially organized. Such data, if sequentially ordered and printed, conveyed value and truth. Arranged any other way, they were suspect. The newspaper format brought an end to book culture. It offers short, discreet articles which give important facts first and then taper off into incidental details which may, and therefore are, eliminated by the makeup man. The fact that reporters cannot control the length of their articles means that in writing them, Emphasis can't be placed on structure, at least in the traditional sense, with climax or conclusion at the end. Everything has to be captured in the headline. From there it goes down the pyramid to incidentals. 
The position and size of articles on the front page is determined by interest and importance, not content. Unrelated reports from Moscow, London, Sarawak, and Itapik are juxtaposed, time and space are destroyed, and the here and now are presented as a single gestalt. Subway readers consume everything on the front page, then turn the page to read the continuations in incidental order. The mind concentrates on particulars, not relationships. A Toronto banner headline ran, Townsend to marry princess, and directly beneath this, as a second headline, Fabian says this may not be sex crime. This went unnoticed by eyes and minds conditioned to consider each newspaper item as an isolation. Such a format lends itself to simultaneity, not chronologically or linear. Items abstracted from a total situation are not arranged in causal sequence, but presented in association as raw experience. The front page is a cosmic Finnegan's Wake. In magazines, where a writer more frequently controls the length of his article, he can, if he wishes, organize it in the traditional style by the majority do not. For the format as a whole opposes literality, in life, extremes are juxtaposed, spaceships and prehistoric monsters, Flemish monasteries and dope addicts. It creates a sense of urgency and uncertainty. The next page is unpredictable. One encounters rapidly a riot in Tehran, a Hollywood marriage, the wonders of the Eisenhower administration, a two-headed calf, a party on Jones Beach, all sandwiched between advertisements. The eye takes in the page as a whole. Readers may pretend that it isn't so, but the success of advertising suggests it. And the page, indeed, the whole magazine, becomes a single gestalt where association, though not causal, is often like-like. The same is the true of other new languages. Both radio and television offer short, unrelated programs, interrupted between and within by commercials, though children do not regard them as interruptions as breaking continuality. Rather, they arrange them as parts of a whole, and the reaction is neither one of annoyance nor indifference. The ideal news broadcast has half a dozen speakers from as many parts of the world on many subjects. The London correspondent doesn't comment on what was the Washington correspondent had just said. He hasn't even heard him. Of the new language, television comes closest to drama and ritual. It combines music and art, language and gesture, rhetoric and color. It favors simultaneity of visual and auditory spaces. Cameras do not focus on speakers, but on persons spoken to or about. The audience hears the accuser, but watches the accused. In a single impression, they hear the prosecutor, watch the trembling hands of the big town crook, and see the look of a moral indignation of Senator Toby's face. This is real drama in process, with the outcome uncertain. Print cannot do this. It has a quite a different bias. Thus, each communication channel codifies reality differently and therefore influences, to a surprising degree, the content of the message communicated. A study of such biases was begun at the University of Toronto in 1953 under a grant from the Ford Foundation. Faculty members from anthropology, economics, English, psychology, and town planning met weekly for two years with graduate students from various fields. We went first that the methods used in our different fields were easily translatable and could be employed by one or another. 
We began with the later works of Harold Innes, an economist who shifted his attention from the trade routes of the external world to the trade routes of the mind. Technology, he saw, had often solved the problem of production of commodities, and he had already turned to the packing of information. And the penetrative powers of the pricing system was nothing beside the power of the new media of communication to penetrate and transform all existing instructions and patterns of thought. This is especially true of television. We say, we have to have a radio set, but we have a television as if something had happened to us. It's no longer the skin you love to touch, but the nylon that loves to touch you. We don't watch television. It watches us. It guides us. Magazines and newspapers no longer convey information, but offer ways of seeing things. They have abandoned realism as too easy. They substitute themselves to realism. Life is totally advertisements. Its articles packed and sell emotions and ideas just as paid ad sell commodities. In studying changes in communication media, Innes found the key to his analysis of the problems of competition and monopoly, change and order, grow and decay. These changes came about as each technological advance destroyed an existing communication monopoly. It came tumbling down like the walls of Jericho. Innes had an intense dislike of monopolies of knowledge. They appeared to him to be productive of bias in communication that was fatal to mutual understanding among peoples and nations. He urged that we harness and subordinate the new languages to human ends. Of our interest in this shift from production and distribution of commodities to packaging and distribution of ideas and feelings led us to writings of Siegfried, Gideon, Dorothy Lee, Edward Spaper, Jiri Kipes, H.J. Chater, Belay Velaz, Sergei Einstein. It also led to undertake the following one experiment. 136 students were divided on the basis of their overall academic standing of the previous year into four groups who were either one, heard and saw a lecture delivered in a television studio, two, heard and saw the same lecture on a television screen, number three, heard it over the radio, number four, read it in a manuscript. Thus, there were, in CBC Studios, four control groups who simultaneously received a single lecture and then immediately wrote an identical examination to test understanding and retention of content. Later, the experiment was repeated using three similar groups. This time, the same lecture was, one, deliver in a classroom, two, presented as a film, using the kinesthetic scope of a small theater, and number three, again, read in print. Announcement of the results, television one, followed by lecture, film, radio, and finally print, evoked considerable interest. Advertising agencies circulated the results with the comment that here at last was scientific proof of the superiority of television. This was unfortunate and missed the main point for the results did not indicate the superiority of one median over another. They merely directed attention toward differences between them, differences so great as to be a kind rather than degree. Some CBS, CBC officials were furious, not because television won, but because print lost. 
Scratch most of you and you find student Christian types who understand little of literature and contribute less but like publishers have a vested interest in book culture. At heart they hate radio and television which they employ merely to disseminate the values of book culture. Official culture still strives to force the new languages to do the work of the old, but the horseless carriage did not do the work of the horse. It abolished the horse and did what the horse could never do. Horses are fine, so are books. Nobody yet knows the language is inherent in the new technology culture. We all are deaf-blind mutes in terms of the new situation. Our most impressive words and thoughts betray us by referring to the previously existent, not to the present. The problem has been falsely seen as a democracy versus the mass media, but the mass media are the democracy. The book itself was the first mechanical mass medium. What it really is being asked is, of course, can books monopolize knowledge, survive the challenge of the new languages? The answer is no. What should be asked is, what can print do better than any other medium, and is it worth doing? If Johnny has the same experience, more fully, at the corner cinema, than he gets by reading Sir Walter Scott, then it's senseless to insist he read Scott. T.S. Eliot has said he would prefer an illiterate audience, for the ways of official literacy do not equip the young to know themselves, the past, or the present. In the schoolroom, officialdom suppresses all their natural experience. Children of technological man are divorced from their culture. They cease to respond with untaught delight to the poetry of trains, ships, planes, and to the machines and beauty of machine products. They're not permitted to approach the traditional heritage of mankind through the door of technological awareness. This only possible door for them is slammed in their faces. The only door that is the high brow. Few find it, and fewer find their way back to popular culture and to classroom without walls that the new languages have created. Editor's note. To reach beyond their own classroom walls, the members of the Toronto Seminar decided to publish a journal, Explorations, to study media biases. Financed by a small amount of surplus secretarial funds, limited to no more than 2,000 copies per issue by the difficulty of handling and not intended for permanent reference, the first numbers of the magazine have already become collector's items. Published three times a year for two years in a handsome format that should have merited a colophon, Explorations is an attempt to treat the humanities the social sciences as a continuum with anthropology and communication as approaches, not bodies of data. Faced with a shortage of relevant material, the editors were required to pad the extratonious but often simulating articles, such items as letter file and ID file, or penetrating comments on popular culture that merit reprinting. A gem of parody is meatpacking and processing, which exhumes some quirks of the embalming profession. Of the outstanding covers, two should be mentioned. The second issue gave us both sides of poke both covers, the satire of a newspaper called Fish Night's Playhouse, each news item and featuring contributing to the comodal effect that we not really read and understand a newspaper before. The fifth issue, superimposed on the front page of the Toronto Daily Star, a color photograph of a golden grilled mother goddess, Our Lady of Sports and Muse of unofficial poetry, arms upraised and blessing of the arena. 
In these, the tone of the editor's approach was made clear. Among the articles the most successful were S. Fried Gideon's On the Metaphysics of Paleolithic Art, Dorothy Lee on Language, Northrop Fry on Archetypes and Literature, D.C. Williams on Acoustic Space, Stephen Gilman on Time and Sense in Spanish Epic Poetry, David Reisman on Oral and Written Traditions, Lawrence Frank on Tactile Communication, and Edmund Carpenter on Esquivel Concept of Space and External Eternal Life. A major result of the publication venture is that the seminar has gained acceptance at Toronto as an apparent result of the praise directed toward the University of Explorations from elsewhere. With the sixth and final number now being published, and it's good news to learn that Anchor Books may shortly publish an anthology of explorations. There is also the encouraging possibility that the Toronto Group will launch another series within the next two years. What is described as really an experimental effort with changes of policy and format in each issue. Perhaps they will thus begin to answer their own question. What can print do better than any other medium? And is that worth doing?